Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Catherine Gerbner. Uh, Catherine, in her background, is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Minnesota, uh, where she teaches courses on early America, and the Atlantic world, the history of religion, now, that is an interesting idea in and of itself, <laughs> uh, Caribbean history, and the African diaspora. Uh, she is joining us on our program to share some thoughts that go along the lines of some of the things talked about in her book entitled Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. Interesting title for a book. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Lots of things that I want to ask you about, but I'm going to go back to something I mentioned in introducing you because this does intrigue me. On a college or university campus, talking about history and um, early America history, what's the response like from students? Do they get engaged? You know, they do get engaged, and especially when you teach history in a way that connects it with the present. So I found, uh, I found it really successful to sort of introduce, uh, you know, current events or things that are happening today and then connect them with uh, things that happened in the past. Um, you know, we can think about race today and see how uh, the idea of race has evolved over time. Uh, and students also get interested in things that they find to be totally inexplicable. So, you know, I, I teach a course um, called Magic and Medicine, and we talk about the history of witchcraft and trying to put ourselves in a place where, you know, something like the Salem Witch Trials could make sense. Uh, that, I think, is very engaging for students. Um, but really, yeah, it, I mean, you just have to make history important. And I think it's not a hard task because history is very important today. Uh, and so as long as I'm doing that in my courses, I, 
I definitely find that students are engaged, they ask questions, and you know, they come out of the courses feeling like they really understand our contemporary society better. Well, it's good to hear that you know, you're doing something which, first of all, creates um, a process in education that I love when I spend time in college classes um, because it's one of the things that I like to do outside of here. And that is to actually get people engaged in the educational process. It doesn't have to be something where you're just sitting reading words from a book that was written a million years ago mm-hmm. um, and is introducing ideas and concepts that are basically completely foreign to the young people who are reading them. Um, but to take this and make this something that actually relates to things today, I think creates understanding in a way and you know, it hopefully then can be something that's useful for them yes. in, in their lives today. Mm-hmm, exactly. Why this book at this point in your life and your work? Right. Why did I write a book uh, called Christian Slavery? I, I never really set out to do that. Um, this actually emerges from my interest in studying the anti-slavery movement and abolition. And when I began research uh, for what eventually became this book, I was trying to answer the question, you know, how did people combat slavery? And how did they create arguments, uh, successful arguments against slavery? And so I started by looking at the first anti-slavery protest that was written in the American colonies. And that was written in 1688 by a group of German and Dutch Quakers who were living in Pennsylvania. And actually, one of the reasons I was interested in this was because I went to school, I grew up going to uh, high school just a few blocks away from where that anti-slavery protest was written in uh, Germantown, uh, in part of Philadelphia. And um, as I did the research into this project, however, and into that document, I realized that the protest itself was rejected, um, and that was even among Quakers in Philadelphia who were some of the first anti-slavery protesters, you know, Quakers are so often associated as being, you know, an abolitionist group. But I was surprised to hear that in the 17th century, most Quakers actually didn't uh, support ending slavery. And in fact, most Quakers uh, in the colonies owned slaves. And so this was very perplexing to me. And I started asking different questions, like why did why did Quakers own slaves? How did they reconcile this with their theological commitments? You know, they were uh, you know, a very religious and conscientious group of people. And I expanded from there to look at other Protestants and missionaries um, and how they dealt with slavery in the American colonies. And from there, I sort of started asking bigger questions about what role religion played in actually establishing uh, the system of slavery that developed in the English colonies, the uh, Danish colonies, and other sort of uh, Protestant colonies in the Americas. And uh, that's, you know, I just kept going, and eventually I sort of came to this understanding of uh, how important religion had been in, especially Protestant Christianity, had been in sort of creating the legal uh, foundation for slavery in the Americas. What about, because you talk about this in your work, the efforts to really, I guess, convert enslaved people to Christianity? Yes, this is absolutely essential to um, you know what I am, I, what I researched. 
what I found is basically there were Quaker missionaries and other Protestant missionaries who they didn't they weren't against slavery, but they felt that enslaved people should should have the opportunity to convert to Christianity. Uh, and what they found was that slave owners did not want their slaves to become Christians because we have to sort of go back into the 17th century. And at that time, um, to be a Christian and specifically to be a Protestant meant usually that you were a free person. And so it was very closely associated with uh, privileges and rights. Um, and slave owners did not want enslaved people having access to those privileges. And so this is a very different type of society than you know, what we usually imagine when we think of American slavery, and it's usually we think of the 19th century plantation south. Um, this was a very different story, and uh, religion played sort of the essential role in religious difference was the essential way to justify enslaving someone and keeping someone enslaved. And so it was very important for slave owners to keep that barrier up and to not allow enslaved people to become Christians. What was your impression or takeaway when you saw the movie a couple of years ago, 12 Years a Slave? Uh, yes. You know, well, it's, I mean, it's an incredible movie, and it really sort of visually depicts many of the uh, sort of the realities of slavery, in, again, in the 19th century. Um, and so I think it's a really important movie. Um, and, you know, it's coming out of a a, you know, an, an autobiography, right, Solomon Northrup's um, autobiography. And so it's a very well-done movie. But one of the problems that we have in our perception of, of American slavery is that it is so influenced by that period of time, right, by the 1830s, 40s, 50s, right before the Civil War, because that is when uh, there are so many um, slave narratives written, these autobiographies of ex-slaves. Um, and you know, the way that Christianity is portrayed in that movie, you know, you, for those who have seen it, they may remember sort of uh, some of the slave owners using using Christianity as a, well, there it's as a justification for slavery, but it's also, um, you know, slavery or Christianity is sort of forced on enslaved people in some ways. That's not the way that uh, Christianity functioned in the early uh, early colonial period. So we have to sort of recognize that uh, slavery was not a static institution, and nor was Christianity. Uh, these are these are living institutions that changed over time. The justifications for slavery changed over time, and it's really important to see that the 17th century slave system. Um, was different from the 19th century one, but it also fed into it. And so they're connected, but it's, it's uh, critical that we see the differences between them. Things like reading, writing, literacy, um, those being an outgrowth, I guess, of you know how the lives of enslaved people uh, changed. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Yes. So, again... Um, Conversion to Christianity was very closely associated with learning how to read and write. And this was a very, very powerful tool. You know, today we tend to take it for granted, right? Like everyone learns how to read and write. In the colonial period, uh, this was not the case. And uh, one of the reasons that slave owners did not want their slaves to become Christian was because they associated it with literacy. And 
missionaries did teach enslaved people how to read and write in many cases. Um, this was also one of the primary reasons that enslaved people sought out missionaries, wanted to become part of Christian congregations, uh, because it gave them access to education. And um, so this was sort of a very critical part of this story. Um, and, you know, the fact is that it, it was a really powerful skill, and I've found documents in, in the records that I've looked at that are, you know, one letter was uh, sort of written by a, a former slave, a free African woman living in the Caribbean in the Danish West Indies, writing to the Queen of Denmark saying, you know, you need to intercede on our behalf. We're getting beaten for trying to be Christian, um, and this isn't right. So you can see how literacy and writing could be this really important and powerful tool for enslaved and freed uh, African people. Uh, over time, however, slave owners uh, recognized that this was happening, and missionaries who were very desperate to get the approval of slave owners to allow them to you know, evangelize to the enslaved population basically started to change what it meant to really convert to Christianity. And over time, they de-emphasized literacy, um, said, oh, you, nobody needs to learn how to read and write. We can just... Uh, you know, we'll just sort of read them the scripture, and we'll read them. We'll read them specific parts of the scripture that are about, you know, obedience. And so they tried to change what it meant to convert to Christianity to basically exclude literacy, learning how to read and write from that process. And so what we see here is actually a change in how people were defining conversion and true Christianity. Mm. There's so many different thoughts that are racing through my mind here as we're talking. We're talking on our program with Catherine Gerbner. Uh, she has joined us by phone. Her book is entitled Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. I'm Bob Salter. Um, in doing the book, I often ask authors this question I'm going to pose to you. What are you hoping is the takeaway for people who read it? Well, you know, I hope there are a few takeaways. So one is that I hope that people come away, um, and this is some, I haven't quite talked about this part of the book yet, but one of the things I do in the book is I'm talking about the history of whiteness. You know, I, slave owners, Europeans, they used to call themselves Christians, and over time they start to use this word white and they start to enter it into their law books. Um, and it's really, they do so just as there's a large enough population of free black Christians that they could have been claiming um, basically voting rights or the ability to hold office. So I think it's really important, especially in this moment where there's a lot of discussion about whiteness um, and about you know, white supremacy, that we think about the actual term white and where, what its origins are. And I think that helps to inform our conversation today because it's more than just you know, a part of our biology. It's more than just a social construct. It's actually, uh, it, it emerged and was created for a specific historical and political reasons. So that's one takeaway. But also more broadly, I think um, the, I want people to see sort of how many different types of roles religion could play. Um, you know, religion could be used as sort of a tool for oppression, as we see it is in the law books um, that sort of specifically define enslavement as being justifiable for non-Christians. Um, it could also be used as a as a tool for abolitionists to try to defeat slavery. Um, and 
it was also a really important role for those enslaved and free black people who did convert to Christianity. They were creating new interpretations of Scripture, and and I think that we have to hold all of these sort of uh, ways in which Christianity was playing a role in society. We have to hold them in tension and recognize that they were all uh, they were all valid. They were all happening at the same time. And then I would say the last thing is that I hope that the the research shows that you know these are individuals were making decisions. You know, oftentimes we sort of, uh, we take our society at face value and we don't think about, um, I mean, for example, right, the, the idea of whiteness, that this was, that this didn't just emerge out of nowhere, that specific people decided to use this word, use this term for specific reasons. And in the same way, people have tried to you know, use use terms, use scripture to combat slavery. So again, emphasizing the individual decisions that led to sort of the current state of affairs that we are in now, that's really important to me, and not thinking that these were sort of unthinking decisions or uh, sort of this was just uh, what was thrust upon people. These were uh, individuals making decisions that led to uh, concepts like whiteness. What is the reaction when you talk about this concept of whiteness with your students? Uh, with my students, you know, I I bring it up in, in a way that I think is accessible and makes sense to them, and, mm-hmm. and they are very receptive. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't actually gotten very much pushback from students, uh, but I think that's also because I, I pave the way, you know, and I also, I, I make it it's about it's about them and it's about modern society, but I also make it clear that it's it's not about I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty, right? You know, I think that a lot of times people, you know, especially white people, have this knee-jerk reaction of defensiveness when you start to talk about whiteness, um, and that's often because they don't they I think implicitly they don't want to feel blamed for anything that happened in the past, and you know the the way that I tell this history, it's not about blame, it's really about recognition and it's about moving forward and so i think when you put it in those terms and you lay out the i mean the facts you know you you look at this history and you look at the primary documents and i i mean i've been doing that research for 10 years and i think that it just shows very clearly that there is this uh there you know that there is this progression into justifying slavery through race and uh you know it's when i show people like this is the law that was created in 1697 that specifically made whiteness a prerequisite for voting that that hadn't been the case before. Um, it's hard to it's hard to argue with that. Um, what I think is more difficult is talking about this in a more um, you know pub, uh, in the public sphere where you don't you don't get to know people as closely and you can't you can't sort of walk them through the arguments with as much care. So. You know, I published a um, an op-ed in the Washington Post on this sort of on this topic, and you know, for the most part, I think people who are receptive to it were receptive to it. And then you get a lot of comments about, you know, uh, sort of unthoughtful comments from people who who probably didn't even read the article that have the knee-jerk reaction of, "Oh, this is race baiting." Um, and so, you know, I think that that to me has really shown me the difference between trying to talk about this. These, these really sensitive issues on a college campus and within the context of a classroom where I can really sort of um, 
get to know the students and also sort of walk them through these these sensitive issues versus uh, sort of just putting putting an article out there on the internet where you know people don't know who I am, they don't know what my background is, I don't know who they are. Uh, that's a it's a more difficult conversation to have, frankly. Mm. And this whole idea of um, you know somebody saying to you that what you're engaging in is race baiting. I mean, when somebody says that to you, does it make your skin crawl? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 frankly, like, I, it does. But at the same time, I can't, I can't really do anything about it. I, I mean, I, my reaction is just like, huh, okay, well, that person's not open to actually thinking about anything that is might challenge their sort of fundamental assumptions about the world. And um, I, at first, it really bothered me. Now I kind of have to sh- just shrug my shrug my shoulders and, you know, move on and find people who. Um, especially in real life, who are you know more more open to rethinking things and uh, and really being open to understanding our history and our and because that really is the only way to understand our current situation. Mm. When you're talking about this book and um, the work that went into doing this book, one of the things that I understood is that in part of the research for the book you went through a lot of letters that actually were written by um, missionaries you went through things like uh, travel diaries what was that like yes you're right I read through hundreds of pages of uh, missionary diaries uh, when I was when I was very fortunate I would find a letter from an uh, an enslaved or free black person. Yes, those are very, very rare documents for the period I'm looking at. Um, and but you know, when you spend so much time reading someone's diaries, even if it's you know a a missionary living in 1720, uh, you kind of get to you feel like you know them. Um, and so, you know, I would begin to talk to you know people who I you know people, my family. Um, say, oh, oh yeah, my missionary did this today, or my missionary did that today, um, and it's this this fascinating way in which your your mind becomes so uh, so associated with the six, 17th and 18th centuries that it's uh, it's it's almost yeah it's sort of this bizarre dual reality that you begin living. But it was uh, I mean it is a fascinating it was fascinating to research. Sometimes it's really hard because many times you know. A missionary is doing something that I, I have great disagreement with, or, um, you know, I wish I could go back into that period and do something differently. But as a historian, you just have to read through the documents, uh, you know, come to an understanding of what was going on, and then you know, write up your write up the narrative as, as you see it happening. Um, but you know, so it's it's difficult in re- some respects, but I think it's also really important to do this this hard work you know a lot of the the research i was doing it's in these are handwritten documents in the 18th century many are not written in english um but if you know if we just keep writing the same histories over the you know the same printed sources that are easily available i feel like we we miss a lot of what's really going on in the in this early colonial period. And so reading these kinds of sources are especially important to understand the lives of people that we don't normally see. Um, and in the case of missionaries, these are 
these were people who are living, you know, on slave plantations, writing about their conversations with enslaved people on a daily basis. And so they provide an opportunity, even it's even though it's many in many cases through the lens of a missionary. Uh, as a historian, we have methods that allow us to sort of use that source, but to better understand the lives of enslaved people, you know, living in the 18th century. And so it's a lot of work and a lot of effort to sort of read through the sources, but in the end, I think they, it provides a new historical perspective, especially of, of the lives of people who we don't normally get to see. Um, and that is what's so rewarding about doing that research. Mm. What was the, um, I guess, political impact of the idea of a free black Christian population growing? Right. So, uh, I, I sort of mentioned before how most slave owners did not want slaves to convert to Christianity because it was associated with political power and literacy. Um, but, you know, as I said before, also enslaved people recognized this, and, and a small number, you know, not a majority, but a small important number of them were able to gain baptism, and then some were able to win their freedom. And so there was this small population of free black Christians um, who emerged as uh, in the sort of late 17th century, and they uh, began to sort of demand the rights that other free Christians who were property owners also had, and that was, you know, rights for rights to vote in elections and hold political office. And so, this was a really important shift uh, that started to happen in slave societies as free black populations emerged. And what I found is that the response from slave owners was basically to create a new barrier to political power, and that was um, this ideology of whiteness, right? So nobody talked about whiteness in 1650, but you know, 50 years later, in 1700, um, slave owners had, start to ins had started inserting this word white into their law books, um, and it was a response to the emergence of uh, free black populations. Um, and so that then became whiteness rather than religious difference, became the new justification for slavery and also a new way to uh, create a barrier for free people of African descent. When we look at today in the modern world and look at, I guess, kind of the implications or consequences of some of the decisions that took place in the period of time that your book is covering. Uh, what sort of things, I guess, stand out? Well, I mean, the entire, our entire sort of system of uh, the way that we think about race stands out as absolutely a, an inheritance of of this period of time, um, uh, but more specifically, uh, the the relationship between race and voter suppression, I think, is is very powerful. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about voter suppression in recent years, as sort of the Voting Rights Act has been um, sort of slowly rolled back, and there's sort of this understanding that race and voter suppression have have a connection. Uh, what I think that sort of that's the specific history of um, of whiteness actually shows us, though, is that 
it was voter suppression that actually provided the incentive to create the idea of race. Um, so, right, like the, the reason that slave-owning lawmakers started to put the word white in the law books was I mean, specifically to draw up a new law to say you have to be a white Christian person in order to vote, right, to create a new, a new barrier for free people of color um, and prevent them from voting. So I think that this, this perspective shows us that race and voter suppression, they're not just connected. Uh, voter suppression was actually the incentive to create race in many ways, uh, and specifically to create the idea of whiteness. So I think that really sheds a new light on the struggles of, about voter suppression today um, that I think are very significant. Most interesting book and discussion is so many different areas which we could cover in discussion, literally go on for hours. Uh, the book is entitled Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. Catherine Gerbner, our guest in this portion of our program, as I mentioned in introducing her, she's assistant professor of history at the University of Minnesota and um, the author of this book. Most interesting uh, effort on your part. Is there another book in the works? You know, there is. Uh, right now, I'm, I've just started research on a project called uh, Constructing Religion, Defining Crime. And it's about what we, you, you sort of mentioned that I, I write, a, I teach about the history of religion. And, um, you know, the idea of what a religion is has a history, of course. Um, and in many cases, uh, black religious practices, especially under slavery, were actually not, they were not defined by uh, Europeans as religions. Uh, instead, they were often seen as sometimes superstitious, and they were often criminalized. And so the next project is really looking at the, the idea of what a religion is, um, how it has, how the boundaries have shifted over time, and how um, certain religious practices have been defined as criminal, um, and what that means for our understanding of religious freedom today. Well, certainly good luck with that effort. Sounds like a very rewarding and also intriguing project, too. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for sharing this information with us in our discussion. Certainly good luck with this book. Thank you so much. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Max Clow. Max, I've been looking forward to speaking with for some time. He's the chief program officer at the New Politics Leadership Academy. We'll find out about um, that nonprofit and get into talking with him about his book. It's entitled Race and Social Change, A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Thanks for having me. Glad yeah. to be with you. Good morning to you. Um, Background-wise, I introduced you mentioning the New Politics Leadership Academy, and I said it's a nonprofit. Tell us about it. Sure. We're a nonpartisan nonprofit. We're dedicated to recruiting and supporting servant leaders, which for us means military veterans and alumni of national service programs like AmeriCorps or Peace Corps to run for office. We just think they're, um, uh, we, we need some more of that servant leadership in politics, and we're committed to bringing more of those folks with a, a history of service into politics. How old an entity is that? Founded, uh, the, the academy is three years old, and we have a sister organization, New Politics, that's been around about five years. And I'm curious as well, um, what has been the response to the academy? 
Great. There's some amazing leaders out there. Uh, we've supported some remarkable folks. Um, you know, we, we supported 11 folks in the 2018 cycle who were running for Congress, and six of them won. And one of them is Dan McCready, who's still in the race in North Carolina. And there's a lot more, show, just uh, a lot of folks who are looking at the headlines and feeling like they have to step up and serve again. And uh, it's, uh, it's great to be supporting those folks. It's an interesting um group of the population when you stop and think about it because yes service is right at their core when you get right down to it yeah i mean these are folks who have made a serious commitment to to serving country and putting the country first Mm. i mentioned in introducing you your book um, race and social change a quest a study a call to action Uh, a couple thoughts come to mind i usually ask authors this first question Um, some of the people listening to us will anticipate it. Was that the original and only title of this book? I <laughs> hear the first one to ask me that. You know, the original idea was was really what's the first line of the book, which is what's true about race and social change, um, which is a question that animated the book and really I have lived with for decades and really led to this book, but um, decided not to go with that and just uh, talk about it as race and social change with that subtitle of a quest to study a call to action. Why did you choose to go that route? You know, it's it felt a little uh, too much to suggest this was the truth with a capital T mm. about race and social change. Uh, and I'm very clear, you know, I've gone through a decades-long journey of trying to understand this. I felt like I had learned enough to merit trying to put it together in a book and share it. But to, but to say this was capital T truth is just uh, it's not the right way to think about this. Mm. So what has this journey been like for you, being involved in this area of work? Yeah, so I grew up middle-class, straight, white guy in a Connecticut suburb, always aware that race was a really important issue for this country and very divisive, and always just feeling like I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how things could happen, and Americans could have such different views and see such different things in the same events. And... I really lived with that question. I avoided kind of jumping to a certainty of an answer and had a bunch of experiences that gave me a, you know, I, I talk in the book, I got a chance to be a group leader for an organization called Operation Understanding DC that led 30 teenagers, half of them were black and half of them were Jewish. And we did a month long civil rights tour to, uh, you know, important locations in America's civil rights movement, like Montgomery and Selma and Birmingham, and got to engage with these conversations of race with people who didn't look like me for the first time. And I, I say in the book, it was when the, the veils of blindness really started to fall away. And I started to see how much I didn't understand. And that was, you know, just decades of awakening to a higher consciousness of a reality I've been immersed in and just did not see and fully understand. What was it like when you traveled through some of the areas that really were at the heart of the whole battle over civil rights in this country? really one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had because, you know, we would go to these places and meet, you know, we went to Birmingham where the, um, there was the church bombing that killed four little girls and we mm-hmm. got to meet with a parent, um, you know, so to, to talk to people who were really involved in this. And it was, I think about it as an encounter with the civic sacred in America. It was just uh, uh, people who had done amazing things and turned bridges and, you know, uh, lunch counters into kind of sacred spaces that transformed, you know, centuries of oppression 
in this country. So it was really amazing to connect with that history and those people that had done that. Take us to the summer of 2002, because at that point, as I understand, came upon this program. Yes. It was going to be very key. Yeah, it's, it's the study at the heart of the book. So, you know, my efforts to understand these issues led ultimately to a doctorate in education. And I was studying youth leadership, trying to understand how different programs taught youth leadership and understood it. And that led me to a program called Camp Anytown, which has been in, been around for 60 years. It's run all over the country. And it's a week-long residential program for teenagers, for high schoolers. And they go pretty deep into studying racism and uh, sexism and anti-Semitism and xenophobia and Islamophobia, all these things. But there was an activity on the last day that really changed my life. And what happened was the participants would gather in a circle before breakfast, as they did every day. But on this morning, something unusual happened. The directors separated them into groups, whites, Asians, Jews, Latinos, LGBTQ, blacks. And they said very sternly, don't talk to members of other groups and don't make eye contact with members of other groups. And then they led the participants into breakfast and the white kids went in first and had, you know, unlimited food and a big table. And every group lower in the hierarchy had less resources to the point where the black kids were sitting on the floor with very little to eat. And they call it the separation exercise. And it's an attempt to simulate this segregated hierarchical Jim Crow style social system but the educational purpose is to give the participants a chance to practice challenging these norms. And what I saw was between breakfast and lunch that morning, events unfolded that looked stunningly like real events, you know, events of the real world civil rights movement. And I just realized here was a chance to study kind of an unfolding civil rights movement in a Petri dish using the tools of social science. So, you know, I saw that and decided that had to be my dissertation. I spent the next four years of my life studying three more of them and analyzing them. And that that's at the heart of the book. A lot of books on race and social change have been written. What makes your book different? Yeah, I'm very aware there's a, there's a lot to be said here. I do think it contributes from a couple perspectives. One is this, this study that I just mentioned extends a long tradition of classic social psychology experiments into unexplored terrain, like to see a, a, a system with groups of groups undergoing this kind of transformation is related to a bunch of exercises that have been done, but goes beyond them. And I think that's a contribution. And also the grounding in the field of complex systems, which I spent a couple chapters explaining what we understand about complex systems, because I think we can't understand these, this exercise without that. I, you know, that's a field that relates you know, across all kinds of disciplines to chemical reactions and global economics and social fads. But I have not seen it applied quite this way to this issue of social change. And I think it's a, an important perspective to bring to the conversation. So in terms of trying to, I guess, make sense of what you referred to earlier as the separation exercise, how would you move forward in that? To try to break that in, down. In terms of studying it? Mm-hmm. How to, yes. So, you know, I thought the power of it was that you could both understand the experience of individuals in the system while also getting kind of a bird's eye view of the whole system. So what I did was I found a couple of fellow researchers who were people of color. I thought it was very important to make sure I had different people with different backgrounds viewing this. So we would go observe the overall exercise. And then we would also have all the participants in the exercise fill out a brief questionnaire 
so that we could get a sense of their experience. And then we could kind of uh, collectively, uh, you know, agree on what happened to, you know, come up with a narrative of the overall experience that aligned with what all of us saw. And then we could, you know, explore the experiences of individuals who were immersed in different parts of that system and really try and get both this kind of really intimate and also high-level understanding of this whole system undergoing a process of change. As you were putting the book together, did you at all ever think about who it is that might read it? In other words, who's this book for? Hmm. You know, anybody who looks at the headlines and is pained by how divisive and painful and unjust America still is around matters of race, but also loves the country and believes in the ideals of this country and dreams of making things better. And that's really the ideal audience for this. So in other words, this book is extremely timely, to say the least. You know, it's timely, but it's also uh, these issues are just kind of part of our country's DNA. And, uh, you know, it's not an examination of the current headlines, Mm -hmm. but it is an issue that certainly illuminates what's going on in the world today in an important way. Do you think we can ever really get past some of these hurdles? I really do think there is there's actions we can take, choices we can make that could deeply transform America's, uh, you know, culture and relations around race. I definitely think there's work we can do. Like what? So part of the book is a call to service. And mm-hmm. one part of that is a call to um, expand national service so that doing a year of service is kind of a civic rite of passage for all young people. I think it's, I, I worked for 10 years for an organization called City Year, which is an AmeriCorps program, and I've seen how powerful it is to bring young people together from all backgrounds, have people get out of their bubble, work side by side on a cause that is you know, uh, important to the country. And I just think if every young person had that experience, that would be one thing that could really shift uh, you know, the culture around this, because I think it's very easy to just live your entire life in a bubble and not really know one's fellow citizens. And I also think there's other countries that have done truth and reconciliation commissions that have really directly addressed historical injustices. There's no doubt that there are processes, there's things to do, and we have not yet done them. And I think it would be really powerful for our country to embark on that journey. That idea of the uh, service, how do you make that I guess, appealing, attractive, I was almost going to use the word sexy, uh, to, to <laughs> yeah. prospective individuals. Well, I think what's so amazing about the service movement, you know, for a long time it was just military service, and mm-hmm. that's, that's always going to be an option. Right. But increasingly, there are service options for almost any interest you have. You know, City Year was for people interested in education, but now there's there are food core for people interested in, you know, food security. There's coding cores for people who want to do coding and, and find some way to do, you know, uh, public service around coding. There's environmental cores. It can be a way to kind of test out a potential career and explore uh, different, um, you know, pathways and just share your gifts and, and passions in a way that is of service. And it's really exciting to think about what that could look like if we really expanded that and just made it, you know, I'm not a fan of mandatory service where people are forced into it, but the idea of it is such a cultural expectation that it becomes an unusual thing to not do service, that's an exciting vision. We're talking with Max Clow on our program. He is talking with us, um, talking with us specifically 
um, as the author of Race and Social Change, A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action. He is the Chief Program Officer at the New Politics Leadership Academy, and he's joined us by phone on our program. What are you hoping that those who read this book are going to take away from it? My hope is that the book invites people to a higher consciousness of how these systems of race work. Uh, I think one of the key problems and something that really becomes clear in the book is people at the top of the, uh, the top of these systems, white people don't see the system. And it happened again and again that people with the most privilege were just blind to the working of the system. And on the one hand, it wasn't, you know, it didn't come from maliciousness, wasn't personal malice that led to that. It's a systems dynamic that the people at the top of the system don't see it. And it makes it very hard to have conversations that are um, kind of grounded in what's really happening when uh, the, the people with a lot of privilege just don't understand the full picture. So my hope is, is invites everybody to kind of a higher conscious of the systemic nature of this in ways that allow us to work together more effectively to shift these systems. Because I, I do think there are a lot of people who um, wish things were different and don't quite know how to change things. And we seem stuck in, in kind of ineffective dynamics that we've been stuck in for a long time. Do we get some um, movement in that area, um, in the area kind of an approach that you're talking about? Should there be some movement coming in that area from our leaders? <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I dream of the day when there are, you know, political leaders who are calling people to service and who are um, summoning the courage to challenge the country to confront these issues more directly in the way that other countries have dealt with their historical traumas and injustices. But at the same time, everybody, all, all anybody gets to do is control themselves and, you know, their own choices as they wake up in this. And I think there are a lot of people um, seeking a personal pathway to do something meaningful. And I think this work of achieving a higher consciousness is a essential prerequisite for going out and trying to shift any of these, you know, to, to make meaningful change. There is personal inner work that everybody has to do to effectively go out and not just reproduce these dynamics. Speaking of leaders, when we go back to those three exercises that have been mentioned here, um, those leaders had a tremendous impact. Yes. In, in what ways and why do you think that was? Yeah, it, it was not in the ways that we traditionally think about it. It was a fascinating finding. So when I started on this, I kind of assumed that each of these exercises I observed would unfold in roughly a similar way. And that was not the case at all. All three of these exercises unfolded in completely different ways. And part of the research challenge was to try and understand why that happened. And it seems like the, what it came down to was the, the way of being of the directors created some kind of social field that allowed some things to happen and made some things very unlikely. And it was like the inner way of being of the folks in charge called forth a particular system. And it really challenges us to, um, honor the interconnectedness of our inner way of being and the systems in which we are immersed. Um, and when we can shift our inner way of being, the, you know, the logic of this is that we start to call forth 
different systems in the world around us. And, you know, it, it sounds kind of abstract, but in the book it really explains in a very concrete way how the, the way of being of those folks in charge seemed to create dynamics that, that um, influenced what happened in the systems. Mm. And in turn, did it wind up changing those leaders? Oh, that's fascinating. Um, you know, in the, these studies, I, I would not say that the particular exercises we observed changed the directors. I was not really focused on that. But it's certainly, you know, part of the finding is first recognizing that there's a system and there's the more we understand about how systems work, the more we can understand what's going on and how interconnected that kind of inner, the inner quality of presence is to what happens in the world around us. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure the directors themselves were conscious of it. It was, you know, kind of an outcome of a lot of analysis of this, but I think it's an important finding from this work. I want to ask you about something that I was fascinated um, when presented with your thinking on human mm -hmm. social systems. And here, uh, I want you to talk for our listeners a little bit about this um, idea of their organization and the tie-in with fractals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, fractals is this idea from complex systems and the idea is that you see patterns that are the same at every scale of analysis no matter how far in you zoom or how far out you zoom you see the same pattern and kind of the easiest example is a, is a tree which has a big trunk that branches off into two or three you know smaller uh, um, branches and then those branch off into smaller twigs and you see that pattern just playing out at every scale and it seems to be, we see it everywhere in, you know, it's in trees and, and the patterns of veins on leaves. It's in ourself and the veins inside our own bodies. And it seems to be the way living systems organize themselves. And what I realized was if you take that concept and apply it to this idea of a human system kind of going through a transformational process from a very simple hierarchy with one person in charge and everybody subservient towards something much more interconnected and interdependent, you see that transformational pattern happening at every scale from families where we've seen the relationships between husbands and wives shift from, you know, wives were property not too long ago to something much more equal. You see it in organizations that have become much more uh, empowered and interdependent. And even at, at the global scale where, you know, there were kind of superpowers and now everything seems to be much more interdependent. And it's a way of uh, understanding what's going on in a way that is informed by the science of complex systems. And I think just uh, underneath all this complexity around us, this kind of simple underlying pattern pops into view. And I think it's a helpful way to understand the, the dynamics we're immersed in every day. Mm. When it comes down to the issue or question of the um, perpetuation of racism, where do we point in terms of, or is it even a valid issue to point to who's in charge of perpetuating that? Yeah, that's one of the insights is as a student of complex systems, again and again and again, I was challenged by this idea that nobody is in charge of complex systems. There's self-organization, there's nonlinearity where small events can have potentially huge impacts. 
And um, there is nobody in charge of complex systems. And, you know, it was an important moment for me on my own journey of like, you know, we can somewhere in our souls imagine that there's some small room full of folks smoking cigars kind of telling everybody what to do here. But that's not really how it works. And so the challenge is we need to achieve a higher consciousness of the system in which we are immersed um, so that we can not so we so we stop just reproducing the dynamics through our own choices that that contribute to a pattern of self-organization if we don't see how we are contributing to that and part of that we just perpetuate things um, out of a kind of a blindness and so again this idea of the first step is really achieving a higher consciousness of all of this um, so that we can begin calling forth making different choices and calling forth different systems is just an essential step in the journey for everybody Lots of times when it comes to looking at systems or movements, the tendency is to focus on the person who's at the front of the movement. Right. How does that play out in terms of the real way in which systems evolve? Systems self-organize, meaning, uh, you know, in these exercises, in these separation exercises, so two hours would go by with kind of no meaningful change. And then somebody would reach out across the boundary, try and connect with another group. And suddenly, you know, they would take some action and suddenly things would tip. It would be a tipping point. And all of a sudden, within 10 minutes, you get this massive wave of change. And in one of these exercises, so there was this big wave of change. A bunch of young people came together, self-organized a nonviolent protest movement, wrote up kind of a 10-point value statement and began uh, kind of walking around the the camp inviting other groups to join this nonviolent protest movement, very clearly not organized by a director. Like that action was a self-organized response of the system. And, it, um, it, you know, it, so you see that in the world where there's this kind of something happens and it's clearly some issue is some, some, something is ripe to happen and the system self-organizes around it. Now, you know, in the media, and I think often just in our own heads, it's helpful to have, you know, we kind of gravitate to who's the one person directing this, but that's not really an accurate way of understanding that there's one person who controls this. It's a, a system self-organizes, and then maybe there's a person who makes sense as a spokesman for, for that, but it's important to challenge our understanding of authority and power and control, because I do think we, we just have some deep assumptions about um, the existence of power and authority and control that lead us to misunderstand how systems work and how we can participate in systems in different ways. Some people read the headlines and they get very, very dispirited. And that may yeah. be an understatement. And yeah. by the way, let me mention the fact we're talking with Max Clow on our program. Max, the author of Race and Social Change, A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action. He's the chief program officer at the New Politics Leadership Academy. He's our guest this portion of our program. Those people get dispirited. You yeah. remain optimistic. Why? <laughs> um, I mean, let me just say, as part of the journey, I have certainly had moments of despair. I still have moments of being a little overwhelmed by the the um, how dark it, it all is, you know. But I do think there are very concrete things we can do to, to make positive change. I actually, some of my greatest moments of joy in my life have been participating in service programs where we are working alongside each other to transform these 
massive systemic injustices. It, it is just to, to feel like one is of service and trying to work on this can be a pathway to personal joy and also societal transformation, you know? And also my attitude is, um, you know, if I start to get too complacent at all the progress that's been made and how much change has happened, then I try and focus on the how much work there is still to do. And if I start tipping into despair, I try to focus a little bit on, you know, how much change has actually happened and how realistic the possibility of change is and just try to hold myself on this very narrow path of um, being, you know, uh, being in the work without tipping too far into despair or complacency. Wonderful discussion. A very, very good book. It's entitled Race and Social Change, A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action. Max Clow, the author, the chief program officer at the New Politics Leadership Academy. Thank you for joining us on our program, sharing your insights and breaking down some of these uh, concepts that you're talking about in the book, too. Most interesting discussion. I certainly wish you the best with the book and with your work. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. We're going to take a pause in our discussion and get a look around the sporting world this Sunday morning. Welcome to our program. I'm Bob Salter. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Michael Barron. Michael is a co-author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions. It's an interesting title for a publication. He is uh, joining us on a program. We're getting into a lot of areas of discussion. His background, he holds a Ph.D. in cultural anthropology. He's been researching, teaching, and practicing around issues related to diversity for over 20 years and he is um, joining us by phone on our program. First of all, it's nice to have you uh, join us on our program this morning. Thanks, Bob. Great to be here. That title for this publication, how did you guys come up with this? Well, the title, in effect, is the whole argument, right? Um, so what my, my co-author is Dr. Tiffany Jana. And so what we did is you know, we found that these things called microaggressions, which for people listening who aren't familiar, it's when people are maybe, they're not trying to do anything bad. They're not trying to do harm, but they, they might be trying to bond or to ask a question or to compliment someone. And the effect, though, is the opposite. The effect is it makes someone feel bad or excluded or diminished. And so these things are quite common, actually, um, relating to people of all different marginalized identities. So we're not just talking about race here, but ethnicity, gender, sexuality, disability, religion, age, all, all the different dimensions of diversity. So what we saw in, in the research is that these things keep happening to people, and they're, they're serious. Like, they're affecting people's happiness, their satisfaction in their job even their mental and physical health. And we weren't making progress on them as a society. And so what Tiffany and I found independently, we worked for different organizations, but what Tiffany and I would find um, is that we'd go, we'd do workshops with people and we'd try to get them to see how important this was. And we started to realize that that term itself, microaggressions, might be at least part of the problem in the way that it framed the whole concept in the way that it got people thinking about 
what this was and how to deal with it. And so, for example, um, one of the things it would do is it get people really defensive. Like, you know, so to give you an example, we'd say, hey, you said you're so articulate to that person, that African-American person. Um, that might be a microaggression. And, and they'd say, what? I wasn't trying to be um, aggressive at all. And they'd get super defensive. And that would stop the conversation. Or, and even more importantly, um, you know, everyone else would feel like we're, people were saying these are just micro. They're a small problem. They're not a big deal. When, in fact, it's quite the opposite. And so what Tiffany and I decided to do is reconceptualize this whole thing and just call these things what they are. First, they're subtle, right? That's what makes them hard to even think about and talk about. Second, they're not intentions. They're acts. They're things people said and did. And we can talk about those in a more productive way. And then exclusion is the effects of them. So that's the opposite of inclusion. You know, I'm, I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner. And what we mean by inclusion is that people feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. And when these things happen, they create the opposite of that. And so that's why we just said, let's, let's take this new term and put it right there in the title. And even introducing these kind of ideas to an audience, I mean, how do you expect this to be received? Yeah, well, we've had some experience now um, doing presentations. I've done a bunch of different presentations on this, talked with lots of people. And the, I, so I kind of know how it's being re- received by people. And it's, it's fantastic. I mean, what I mentioned about how these microaggressions or subtle acts of exclusion keep happening to people and people are so frustrated by it and so tired of it. I mean, the same kind of thing might happen to someone, you know, 10 times in a day, right? And, and they are so frustrated and have maybe tried to speak up about it and say something like, hey, I don't, you know, when you ask me where I'm really from as an Asian American, it makes me feel like I don't, you're saying I don't belong, right? They might have tried to do that and the person got defensive and so they just stopped trying and have got and got kind of resigned to the fact that this was going to happen over and over again. And so when we present this idea and this different way of approaching this concept along with a whole lot of guidelines and deep understanding for talking about it more productively, when we share that with people, there's almost a sense of... Um, relief and hopefulness that maybe we're not stuck in this. Maybe we don't have to be just resigned to the fact that this is always going to happen. Maybe we can really make progress and come together to stop these things from happening, to be able to have conversations about them without all the defensiveness and to really make progress and even culture change. Michael, do you at all have to be concerned about people who might view this as basically just being semantics? Um, (laughs) People might think that, but the way that you frame a concept is super important in the way that it implies what's at stake here, in the way that it guides people's understanding of the concept itself, and in the way we deal with it in the real world. So if I say, if 
if I were a marginalized person, I'm not, I'm a white man. Um, if I were, you know, an African American man and I said, Hey, when you called me articulate, you know, it felt like you were saying that people like me aren't expected to be articulate. And that's a microaggression. If I say that and the person receiving it says, I wasn't trying to be aggressive at all. What are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. And now we're in a, an, an adversarial kind of discussion, not getting anywhere compared to, right? If I said, and if we were all, I mean, this is the key. If we all at an organization had been, had gone through some training and some practice on this, and then I said, hey, you know, that was a subtle act of exclusion. I know you didn't mean anything bad by it, but it was a subtle act of exclusion. And the other person said, ha, huh, like I'm hearing that, tell me more, right? And we were able to come together around this and actually make some progress. That's not semantics. Then now the way the term is doing that framing in one situation leads to a bad outcome and in one situation, potentially a better one. And that's great. So it's not just semantics. A natural question in the age in which we live, the time in which we're living right now, and realistically, this time of the year, this year surrounds the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, killing. Yeah. How... I guess, how could this all be handled better based on what you're talking? How could the, um, how could what exactly be handled better, Bob? Uh, Specifically, in terms of the way in which, you know, there's certain things that fall in the category of being exclusions in this country that might be very explicit there yeah. people point to things that are structural in nature yeah yep. and what you're talking about is something that's kind of far removed from that in a way or mm-hmm. it, or, or is it right yeah i'm glad you asked that that's really important um because i don't think it is and we and tiffany and i don't think it is and here's why um So you see, you know, you see the horrific injustices. There are certain things that you just, you know, you can't, you can't not see, right? And, um, and those happen and they're horrific. And, and then underneath that, sometimes what you don't see, what's kind of invisible is so much of the foundation on which our, our unequal, unjust, and not inclusive society operates. And those explicit, um, those explicit horrific things that we see rest on this larger foundation of structural inequality, of unconscious biases, and of these um, subtle acts of exclusion. And so um, what's so important is that if we're able to address and actually make some progress on these everyday things, we can start to chip away at that pyramid, chip away at the foundation on which all this other stuff rests. And so that, I mean, what we're looking at here, right, we're, we're in this for the long haul, um, you know, as a society, we're looking at a paradigm shift from a long period of time where people were not treated equally or justly and moving to something new where hopefully this is where we're moving, where people are truly uh, have true equity, true inclusion. If we're going to get there, it's going to take the work 
on all of these different levels. So yeah, there are, there's a whole range of exclusions, right, in the world. Some are very explicit and some are way more subtle and implicit. And we've got to, if we want to get to this new place, we've got to address all of them. And, you know, even in, in this time when people are trying to, when more and more people are speaking up and um, seeming to come together around um, Black Lives Matter and things like that, even in that process, uh, people are committing subtle acts of exclusion all the time. And so it's important that we're addressing them, even specifically in this context. This idea of the subtle acts of exclusion, um, let me put a scenario out there that I know you address in, in your work, but I think this is something that a lot of the people who are listening to our discussion today can relate to, and I want you to address how this can sort of, I guess, cross the line into that whole subtle acts of exclusion area. Yeah. A man who's wearing a ring is asked a question, and this happens a lot. Mm-hmm. What does your wife do? Mm-hmm. How, does that yeah. cro- how does that cross the line? Yeah, yeah, good question. So what, this, what that does, right, is it reveals this assumption about heterosexuality. Um, and, and, and I see this, you see this all the time. Um, and so if that man is married to another man, then what that's communicating to him is, even if, so let's take this scenario and play it out. Man is married to another man, and someone says, hey, what does your wife do? And he says, um, well, my husband actually does this. And even if the person goes, oh, okay, sure. Oh, sorry about that, right? Even in that case, they've already communicated. They've already done this subtle act of exclusion where that person feels you're not normal. Right. When there's a pause, when there's an assumption um, that he this wouldn't be something you would obviously potentially be is married to a man. It's communicating you're not normal. Right. Or, or you don't belong in this society. And so we've got to get rid of those assumptions. I mean, I see this all the time. I have four kids and I see this all the time, like people coming up to my, you know, my boys and saying, yeah, do you have a girlfriend yet? Or people coming up to my daughter and saying like, oh, watch out, you know, the boys are going to go crazy for her. All these assumptions about heterosexuality, even with children who don't even, you know, they haven't even, they don't even know what, who they're going to love and who they're going to be romantically interested in. Um, but we've just got to get, you know, this is what I talked about in terms of culture shifts. We've got to get to a place where we don't have those assumptions, where it's not assumed that what's normal is a heterosexual relationship, where everyone can be accepted as normal. And it's, it's not that complicated to ask someone like, hey, oh, I see a ring. First of all, are you married? And what does your partner do? Right? It's not that complicated. Mm-hmm. Another scenario. And again, this happens a lot. Someone who's white says to a co-worker who is an African-American, I don't even see you as black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Now that person right. probably thinks, well, it's what I just said. I don't even see you as black. Mm-hmm. How could that be anything anybody would see as being wrong? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's an example. That's a clear example where basically then, um, you know, you're that subtle act of exclusion is made, is telling the person you are invisible. Like if I am black, right? And so if you don't see me as black, you're not seeing me as who I am. And and it's communicating probably something problematic about the way that they see the category of black people, right? As if there's only one way to be black. And so if you're a little bit different than that expectation, I just take you and put you in a separate category um, rather than changing your expectations of that category itself and maybe not being so stereotypical in the way you think about it. What kind of evidence is there that for someone who experiences microaggressions, what that really takes in terms of a toll on the person's emotional well-being, even their physical health? Yeah, yeah. So in the in the literature, you can see um, you can see connections between people um, people who experience these things often and their their mental health from experiencing them, their physical health in terms of, you know, stress and anxiety and lack of satisfaction in a, in a workplace, not feeling belonging in a workplace. And that's, that's serious. I mean, that besides the impact on the individual, which in and of itself is, is dangerous. Um, when you're talking about a workplace, and you know most of the work that I do is with people in the workplace um, through inquest consulting, um, when you see that exclusion, that kind of exclusion can happen really fast. It, and 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 when people start to feel excluded at the plate at a place, they often they stop giving their whole selves. They stop trying to really um, invest. They're all their creativity, all their critical thinking, all of their energy, and probably start to look for a different job if they're feeling excluded in a place. And, you know, we're seeing that, gosh, we're seeing that so much these days, even with, you know, let's take the example of the, the moment we're living in right now and um, the leadership of an organization not sending out a message to all the staff right? Addressing what people may be going through. Mm. Just even that lack of sending a message is making people feel that absence and it's making them feel excluded at the place where they work. And, and that's critical for an organization to address, right? It's critical for the person. Obviously we want everyone to feel fulfilled and satisfied and happy and not have to, you know, have their mental and physical health impacted by these things. And it's critical for organizations to address if we really want to have everyone feel valued and respected and welcomed and fully participating. As opposed to feeling like they're left out, they don't matter, et cetera. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. We're talking with Michael Barron on our program. Michael is a co-author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop uh, Microaggressions. And he's joined us by phone on our program. I'm Bob Solter. When we're talking in this discussion, there's so many different areas where we can go. Yeah. Um, the idea of having conversations about the subtle acts of exclusion, mm-hmm. how 
tricky can that get? Because I, I can also understand some situations where, you know, you might get some people who are not going to be real receptive to this. How, how then do you handle it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, they can get, they are tricky, right? Because we're humans and humans with all our messy emotions, that can make things complicated. And so it's, it's really important to, to set us ourselves up for the best chance of success with these conversations. So one way to do that when we're working with an organization is to make sure everyone's on the same page, to get trained for what these things even are, these subtle acts of exclusion. So often, people don't even recognize them if they're not happening to them, right? Um, so, for example, subtle acts of exclusion that are happening to women, uh, so often men don't even see it happen necessarily, a lot of men, right? And so that's the first thing is just building up an awareness of what these are and how common they are and um, what they're making people feel, right? What the problem is with them. That's one part. Then building in um, some real concrete practice and strategies for being able to have conversations that are productive. Too long we've just left people to their own devices to talk about this or not. And then the conversation can easily turn into an adversarial sort of um, situation and that doesn't go well. And I've, I've seen it happen. I've seen people, you know, dig their heels in, like, I wasn't trying to be aggressive. And, you know, how can you say that? You don't know the context. You don't know what I'm thinking. And, and we're not getting anywhere when that happens. And so one of the things that Tiffany and I do in the book is we have some real concrete strategies for how to have that conversation if you're the person who experiences the subtle act of exclusion, or if you're a person who just maybe oversees it, sees it happen, or hears about it happening, it's important for you to be able to speak up as an ally too, so that the responsibility doesn't always fall on the marginalized person to speak up about these things. And then, the person who said the subtle act of exclusion or who did the subtle act of exclusion, they need to have concrete strategies and guidelines too to help this go productive because sometimes it, because of what you said, it is so tricky. And yet, if we want to have these conversations, if we have relationships, if we're at work um, with coworkers, if we're with family, if we're with friends, and the relationship is important, and we want these conversations to go well and not just evolve into a shouting match, um, we need to have these strategies and to practice them. And we really can. I mean, you know, we've been doing, uh, the folks that I work with, we've been doing this diversity, equity, and inclusion work for over 20 years, most of us. And we know best practices for when those conversations go well, what were the factors that contributed to that? And so a lot of that finds its way into the book and into the trainings that we do and the digital programs that we create to help people practice this. Um, you know, digital programs are great because we created one recently where we had a graphic novelist um, depict some of the common examples that happen to people. 
and we have people go through this scenario, the same scenario, from the perspective of the person that experienced the subtle act of exclusion, the person that oversaw it, and the person who said it, and practice different ways of responding and seeing what happens, just so you get a sense in your head, oh, yeah, if I do this, this could be a good reaction. If I do this, it might not be a great reaction. What are all the, practice that on your own in a sort of safe space, or when you get into the real world and you have these conversations, your first response might be a better one than the one you had been thinking of before. And, and that's so critical because these, we don't want to set ourselves up for failure by thinking, oh, I'm just not going to do any subtle acts of exclusion and then I'll be fine. Because guess what? We all do. And so they're going to happen for sure. And so let's prepare ourselves the best we can for these tricky conversations. That term microaggression, you know, some people might immediately um, attach a, a kind of a, a negative or an aggressive label to it, hearing that term. Mm-hmm. How do you, I guess, flip that in people's minds from being viewed as something negative right off the, right off the bat? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, part of that is the whole reconceptualization that we've done with subtle acts of exclusion. So, you know, especially in the in organizations these days, people are really starting to have an understanding of what inclusion is and why it's so important and trying to move toward inclusion. What are inclusive practices? What are inclusive leadership practices? really understanding how inclusion matters for an organization in all these different ways, in people's satisfaction, in problem solving, in literally your bottom line. And so then when you frame this as a subtle act of exclusion, the something that's taking away from inclusion, that automatically has signals to people, this is important and I kind of know why and I want to do something about it, right, rather than um, a personal attack. And now I'm not saying we always have to take care of, you know, we always have to take care of the person who, who said the, the microaggression or the subtle act of exclusion so carefully and worry about what they're feeling, for example. Like sometimes it, it does feel aggressive what someone does, and sometimes it is aggressive. They're, like I said, there's a whole range of these things. And so... Um, sometimes they are aggressive. And then we're talking about something else. Then we're not necessarily talking about subtle acts of exclusion, but we're in a different realm that we need to talk about and address in a different way. Most interesting discussion that we're having with Michael Barron on our program, co-author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions. One of the thoughts I've had is something that, I've kind of saved toward the end of our discussion because mm-hmm. one of the things that I've read that you actually counsel is this idea of expecting that these subtle acts of exclusion will happen. Yep. And some people might go, what? <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, that's key, right? It's key. There to have realistic expectations. So when they do happen, right, it's not 
like record scratch. Um, you know, I'm I'm being accused of being a bad person, and I I marshal all my defensive um, resources, right? Because nobody wants to be a bad person, and that's the thing, right? For the most part. People aren't waking up in the morning thinking, how can I exclude others today, right? We're all, we're trying to be good people. And if we kind of, if we expect these things to happen, that this is a normal part, when we're trying to really um, come together across differences and similarities and differences, we, these things are going to happen. This is part of the deal. And so if we expect them to happen, then we can kind of commit to, you know, as my colleague David Stone would say, um, stumbling and fumbling through this all together. But we're committed to doing it together. We recognize that, you know, this hasn't always been done well, and we're trying to move to something better. And so if we just expect this to happen and practice ways of then responding so that we're ready to have productive conversations that invite people into a conversation that build trust, that build inclusion, that um, help people actually move to this better place, um, then then we can really get somewhere. And that's that's what we're trying to do, right? We're really looking forward to to culture change, whether we're talking about an organization or society at large, and and we're not there yet, and we have some work to do, but we've got to commit to doing it together and to have, you know, open conversations, transparent conversations. We don't want the situation that we're often in right now where people are too afraid to even talk about this. I mean, I was, I was work, doing some work for a veterinary hospital, and they said things were so tense around the topic of race, they literally felt like they couldn't say black lab when a black lab came in for treatment. That, that's not productive. We need a culture where we're much more open and able to talk about things and make progress and come together in a new sort of way. Michael Barron, who is co-author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions, our guest this portion of our program. Thank you very much for joining us. Wonderful discussion. Certainly the best with this book and your work. Thank you so much, Bob. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I've been looking forward to speaking with Marjorie Kelly for some time. She has an interesting uh, background to bring to our discussion today. Um, We're going to be talking about uh, most uh, intriguing publication, too. The book is The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. There's an idea for you to think about as well in our discussion. Uh, Marjorie is joining us by phone on our program. Uh, She and uh, Ted Howard are going to be having a public event um, in the city on the 23rd of this month. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Good morning to you. Uh, in your background, one of the things that uh, struck me, in addition to putting this to get book together, is you were affiliated with the Democracy Collaborative. Can you tell us about that venture? Yeah, the Democracy Collaborative, we're a, 
a nonprofit with offices in D.C. and Cleveland, and we do economic development that is helping communities that are mostly disadvantaged. So we work in both theory and practice uh, to build the democratic economy across the country. We have a staff of about 40. We've been around for close to 20 years. Okay. Now, you've used an interesting term, and theoretically, I used it in the title of your book, Democratic Economy. It's an intriguing term. What does it mean? Yeah, that's a great place to start. You know, we right now have an economy that's by and for the 1%, the wealthiest people. And we need an economy that's designed for all of us to flourish. And that's what we mean by a democratic economy. And we don't just mean, say, for example, regulating capitalism as it is. We mean really a different kind of system that's designed from the ground up for the prosperity of everyone. Like take, for example, employee-owned companies. Right now, most companies are owned by shareholders. Shareholders are largely the wealthiest 10%. And uh, and so when you have companies that are owned by employees, controlled by employees, you have a fundamentally different kind of uh, possibility there. You have companies that can aim to serve employees and not just uh, not just those with capital. So that's what we mean by a democratic economy. We mean institutions, structures, processes. Everything in the economy is designed for all of us to flourish. Some will say, "Well, wait a minute." How how realistic is this? Well, right, of course. You know, it sounds pie in the sky, doesn't it? But what we do in the book is we go around and we visit, well, where is this already already emerging? I mean, this this concept in various forms has been around for decades. It's emerging all over the globe. There are thousands of employee-owned companies in the U.S., there are, uh, there's economic development uh, that's designed to be inclusive. In one chapter, we visit Portland, Oregon, and we look at how the entire economic development department there reoriented itself toward racial and gender equity. That's now their prime purpose. And we talk with a, with a young entrepreneur who was helped by them and went on to become um, Oregon Entrepreneur of the Year, Tyrone Poole. He, at one time, was a homeless man. He um, started a company that would help to match uh, people who need affordable housing with with openings. And uh, that's an example of, you know, you have this basic part of the economy, economic development, designed to serve people who were normally excluded. This is happening all over, Bob. And when you introduce these ideas, this approach, what's the reaction? People are excited. We, people um, like you are sometimes skeptical. They're like, they don't <laughs> think this is possible. They don't think this is real. And then when, it, when we talk about where it's happening and how it's happening, People are excited. And then I think the next thing they say is, well, but isn't that tiny fringe stuff, and how do we ever, how do we ever get to a different kind of system? So there's a whole series of reactions. Okay. Now, this takes us perfectly where I'm thinking and want to go. How do you respond to that? And then the other aspect of this is, why are people like me so skeptical? I mean, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you point to? Well... You know, most people can more easily envision the end of the world than they can envision the end of capitalism. (laughs) 
You know, we live inside this system. Margaret Thatcher from the U.K. famously said years ago, there is no alternative uh, to capitalism. And, and we live inside that idea, and, and the media reinforces that. We, this is what we, we read about every day is the publicly traded companies and the movement of, of the stock market. And we don't, we don't think about the economy that's, that's beyond that, that this, it hasn't really broken through into awareness. So it's there. We, we also, people don't know how to think about the structure of an economy. Most people don't even know what that means. We just think, oh, government regulation versus free markets. That's the, those are the paradigms that we've lived in for so long. And we're talking about something that goes, that goes deeper than that. So, um, yeah, so there are reasons for skepticism, you know, and the deepest reason is, of course, that, that capitalism is, is global, it's worldwide, it's huge, it's, it's hard to imagine it ever being replaced. But, but what I would say is that capitalism is, is on a collision course with uh, all kinds of crises, and I, we need to begin. That, that's happening all on its own. We, we don't, no one needs to rise up and make that happen. And so we need to begin asking, well, if this system is not sustainable, then what kind of system is? And that's the conversation that we're pointing to. Tell us about your co-founder and co-author, Ted Howard. Yeah, Ted is the president of the Democracy Collaborative. He's um, been running it for 20 years, and he's he's a, a, a an old uh, lefty agitator, I guess I would say. <laughs> and now he, he he travels the globe and he, he talks to, he's going to be talking to the London, the Royal Society of the Arts, and um, he is sought out by uh, business leaders and, and academic leaders and government leaders all over the world saying, you know, we know the economy we have doesn't work, particularly in our community. Help us, help us figure out what comes next. And um, so that's, uh, that's what he and I are, are writing about. At the beginning of our discussion today, I mentioned the fact that on the 23rd of this month, just a couple of days away, you have an event at the um, Strand. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's actually our formal book launch. We're thrilled to be in New York City for the, the formal launch of the book, July 23rd. That'll be at 7 p.m., and, and Ted and I will both be there, and we'll just be talking some about the book, and we hope everyone will come out. Doing this book, I mean, two thoughts. One is, why was it important to put this in book form? And then secondly, what does that mean for the two of you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is the first time that our organization has really said, um, what is a clear articulation of the paradigm that we're working for? We've been working various pieces of this for 20 years. I've been writing about various pieces of this in previous books and doing this work in impact investing and progressive business. And so uh, lots and lots of people have been working on pieces of the democratic economy for decades, but no one has yet put down 
how does this add up to a new paradigm, a new way of organizing an economic system rather than just a little cool thing over here or over there? No one has really articulated that, and that's what we set out to do in this book, and we did it in a simple way, and we did it in a short way. I have a friend who's a art uh, art history uh, professor, and she said she read it in one sitting. So it's it's designed to be read by ordinary people. And, and what we're... What it means for us is a chance to say, let's get serious about seeing ourselves as the next economic system. And by ourselves, I mean the thousands, ten, the tens of thousands of people who are out there working for change in this economy. We are the next system, and we need to take that, that seriously and begin to see ourselves that way. And as you get this feed, feedback from people who are reading the book, being exposed to your message or messages, what are you hoping they're going to take away from it? I'm hoping they'll take away a couple of things. One is some hope that there is an alternative. It's, it is relatively small. It is a relatively early stage. Uh, but that was true of women's suffrage. That, that's been true of every, every serious movement for change that was true of, true of solar power back in the day. Everything starts out small, and, and yet we can have hope. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is I want people to come away questioning the legitimacy of the system as it is. Seventy-two percent of Americans say they believe the economy is rigged against them. <laughs> People know this economy is not for them, but they don't know how. People don't know how to think about how an economy is actually structured. We unveil that in this book. We talk about how it actually is structured that way in investing, in the way companies are designed, in, in the way the stock market is designed. All of it, it there are these invisible structures that, that serve uh, the few, and once you see that and you realize that an alternative is possible and is actually out there functioning, it's not communism, it's not some pie-in-the-sky utopia, it's just real uh, alternatives that are out there right now, then you begin to say, well, why, why do we put up with this? Why do we accept an economy that's designed for the 1%? That's what I really hope people will come away with. And when you are able to boil down some of the... Um, principles that are outlined in this book. Do you think that's a way that connects your message well with readers? That's the hope, Bob. Systems science tells us that human systems are organized around values. It's not about forcing things. It's not about making a ton of new laws, although that might be necessary. It's about what do we instinctively value and how do we organize ourselves to serve what we value. For example, people value uh, sustainability, ecological sustainability. We know that we need to live on this planet and we need to keep it intact. That's a, that's a value that's pretty widely embraced. Inclusion. People of color will be the majority in the U.S., uh, by around 2030. This is not a fringe group that needs a, a little program on the side. These are people who are our fellow citizens, and we need an economy that's designed to serve, to serve all of us. So inclusion, sustainability, um, 
you know, a democratic companies. People people long for work that has meaning and where they have voice and those kind of those kind of companies are possible and are out there functioning. Place. People care about their cities and their towns. Corporations today will abandon them to go find, uh, you know, go seek a better place to extract more profits. But people care about their cities, and so how do we design economies where wealth stays local and recirculates and 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 keeps and keeps the local place flourishing? And community. I mean, we're all in this together. We have we have an economy now that says, you know, make yourself make yourself rich. And so we have billionaires who are out there, uh, you know, uh, young entrepreneurs who are seeking to become billionaires in Silicon Valley, even though one out of three children are going hungry in their own community. But the way things are set up, they don't care about that. There's no designed-in way for them to care about that. And so these kind of values are what we are talking about and the way that these, these alternatives to democratic economies actually being organized. Most interesting discussion that we are having on our program with Marjorie Kelly. Um, she is uh, talking with us and sharing information that is contained in the book, The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. I didn't ask you earlier, was that the uh, only title for this book, by the way? Yeah, that's that's the main title. And the subtitle is uh, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. Uh-huh. In the this book, one of the things that um, I think can connect well with your listeners or with our listeners and also with the people who will read the book, who may in some cases be one and the same, is this idea that you share examples. And I think that's a real powerful way of connecting Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you're able to communicate what it is that you're really trying to accomplish. And it's got to be in a crystallized fashion where people can, oh, yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's where they're going with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. It, you know, this is not Marjorie and Ted's great idea for making a better world. <laughs> yeah, you're, not, you're not doing rock, rocket science or something like that here, right? <laughs> Right. No, this is not rocket science. This is not some complicated theory. You know, this is thousands of people all over who know instinctively that we need to do something different, and they set out to do it, and people have have figured a lot of things out. I mean, we, we look, for example, at uh, uh, in, in Cleveland, where we've done some work, and uh, city leaders there, anchor institutions like nonprofit hospital systems and the university, got together and said, you know, for-profit companies have fled Cleveland. Lots of white people have fled Cleveland. The city lost more than half its population. And they looked around and they said, well, we're not leaving. You know, a Cleveland Clinic is not leaving. Uh, and so what can we do that will help uh, our, our local community to flourish? And they did all kinds of things. They did a, a Greater University Circle Initiative. Anchor, these anchor institutions got together and said, let's, let's pool our resources and, and we'll, we'll buy locally, we'll hire locally, we'll invest locally. And they've done lots of things. One of the things they did is they built um, Evergreen Cooperatives, which which our organization helped with. And this is three employee-owned companies. 
a large commercial laundry. So, you know, every hospital has tons of laundry. They take it to this employee-owned facility, and, and lo and behold, it turns out that employee ownership is a superior way of doing business. You have lower turnover, you have higher quality, and they're actually able to pay higher wages at this uh, at this company because they don't need to extract all these profits to give to shareholders. And so this model is flourishing and is, is, is starting to spread. Others are coming to to Evergreen and saying, we, we want one of those. And, you know, lots of the employees at the Evergreen Laundry are formerly incarcerated. They come from the neighborhoods around the laundry, which are 95% people of color. And that was deliberately where they built uh, they built this laundry and um, in the Evergreen Laundry, it's helping its employees buy homes and buy cars. They're using tax abatement from the city. So these are employee-centered companies, worker-centered companies. And that's an idea most of us don't even dream of. <laughs> and, yet, and yet here it is happening, and there, and there are, are many other examples. Is it tricky... Um when you're putting forth the idea of a new economy, but yet trying to keep in mind that planetary boundaries have to be respected? Yeah, that's absolutely essential, Bob. And that's, uh, you know, we call it the alpha and the omega. You start uh, community and sustainability have to be where you start and your end. We're in this together. Um, you know, so local places need to flourish, so we're in this together as geographic communities, and we're in this together as one planet. That's the ultimate community. I mean, none of us can thrive if the planet um, suffers. And so, you know, we talk about a lot of examples that are small and local and that, that all of us can, can participate in. We also talk about what are some of the bigger uh, programs or, or systems that we need to put in place to actually accomplish, accomplish uh, sustainability. One of them we look at in, 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 in Chapter 7 is how the Federal Reserve could finance an ecological transition. I mean, we, uh, our colleague Carla is working on uh, a pretty audacious idea to just go and buy out 51% of the fossil fuel companies and start to wind them down. And we, we looked at it um, and said this would cost around $700 billion, but the Federal Reserve could basically bring that money into existence without taking it out of, of, uh, of tax dollars. In the same way that we bailed out the big banks in 2008, that was $700 billion. I mean, you might remember Hank Paulson down on his knees as, as Treasury Secretary saying, to Nancy Pelosi, please give me $700 billion. And he got it in the blink of an eye because banks in trouble, that was considered an emergency. Well, what about the planet in trouble? Is that considered emergency? Couldn't we also conjure $700 billion into existence to save the planet? And so this is a, a, an audacious idea that's, that's being circulated that uh, some funders like, and, uh, and, we, and we talk about that in, in one of the chapters. Marjorie Kelly, our guest in uh, this portion of our program, Most Interesting Chat. Uh, Marjorie is a co-author of this interesting publication entitled The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. Thank you very much for being kind and joining us in our discussion. It's been great, Bob. Thanks for having me.
wonderful chat. Certainly the best continued with your work and with this book. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us on our program. I'm Bob Solter. Hopefully we'll see you at 6 o'clock next Sunday morning. Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update this Sunday morning. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.